0: Today's scripture reading is taken from Judges 14, verse 1 to 4. Let's read together in the count of three. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At a time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. You guys may be seated. Love you, church. And today, as I promised last week, you know how last week's sermon, a lot of the application tailored toward families? Today's application will be tailored specifically towards singles. So singles, if today I offended you in any way, I do not apologize, okay? Okay. The families already have their turn, so today is your turn. Now, if I have to choose one character in the Bible that baffled me the most, it will be Samson. Because when I was young, Samson was the character I wanted to be the most. Anyone has Samson as their Bible hero when they were young? Anyone else? Not me. No, me. Like I want to be the Samson. Why? Because think about it. Every other judges in the book of Judges, they save. An army, right? They require help from other people, but not Samson. He does not need anyone because Samson was blessed with this superpower to defeat the enemy on his own. So he was like my favorite hero, and that is Superman. He's like the Superman of the Old Testament. But when I studied the life of Samson, I found his story to be very disturbing and perplexing. Think about it. Now, if you were here last week, you, you remember how the story of Samson's birth, you know, prepared us for something great, something amazing, because he was chosen to be judged before he was even born. And, and this is God's answers to people's refusal to forsake their sin. And, and basically, God just said, you know what? I'm going to give you the best, the best praise, the best gift ever, Samson. So the story of his birth prepared us for this wonderful judge that will do wonderful thing for Israel. But as we're about to see, what we find instead is by far the most flawed judge in the book. Samson is violent, impulsive, sex addict, emotionally immature, and selfish. So if I have one word to describe Samson, he is very narcissistic. Okay, One preacher put it better than me. He says, this, Samson is a he-man with a she-weakness. And his life is very disturbing. But what I find most confusing of all is the fact that the Spirit of God is at work in Samson's life and use his narcissism to do mighty works. Aren't you baffled by that? I'm baffled by that. Because this is a guy, he's a judge, who does not look like judge at all. In Samson, you find a man who's driven by his desire, impulses, instead of the desire to save Israel or obey God. And yet, Samson is God's chosen judge to save God's people. So here's the question that I want us to think about as we look at the text together. How can God use such a narcissistic person like Samson. And throughout the book of Judges, we have seen again and again, right, how God is faithful even though His people are not faithful. But I think right now through the story of Samson, the story will push the truth even further, and that is this. God is faithful even though His judge is unfaithful. And God can use people's unfaithfulness to accomplish His purpose, Okay? So today, we're going to tackle two chapters, okay? Two chapters, not one, two chapters. So chapters uh, 14 and 15. So we're going to do a lot of reading, but I'm going to give you application as we, as we read um, the passage. So I have three points for my sermon. The desire of Samson, the weakness of Samson, and the paradox of Samson. Okay, here's the first one, the desire of Samson, first one. So Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistine at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relative or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eye. So by now, Samson is a grown man, and he does what a grown man does. You know what that is? He has crush on women. And there's nothing wrong with it, right? There's nothing wrong with men. Desiring a woman It's a normal thing. But the problem is, the woman that Samson has a crush on is not an Israelite. I mean, out of all women in her life, he has crush on the worst possible option, a Philistine woman. So he goes to his father and mother and says, Daddy, Mommy, I saw a really beautiful girl, a Philistine woman. Now I want you to get her for me as my wife. So the very first word that comes out of Samson's word that we found in the Bible is this, give me what I want now. This is not love at first sight, by the way. Do You know what we call this? Lust at first sight. And the reason why he needs to tell his parents to get her is this, because they live in a culture of arranged marriage. Now, how many of you are glad we do no longer live in that culture? Raise your hand. All the singles, raise your hand. How many of you are glad and want that culture to come back? All the parents, raise their hand. <laughs> and I'm sure his parents are devastated by this news because they remember how the angel told them that their son will set Israel free from the hand of Philistine, But now, Samson wants to marry a Philistine rather than fight the Philistine. So they say, son, son. I mean, you have a lot of options. So many options. There's so many women in Israel that you can marry. Why would you choose to marry an uncircumcised Philistine? And the key word is uncircumcised. Why? Because circumcision is a sign that someone belongs to God. It's an external sign that someone has personal relationship with God. So the issue with marrying a Philistine, get this, is not racial. It is spiritual. God is not against interracial marriage, but against interfaith marriage. Because God has won Israel, if you remember the story. Israel, do not intermarry with the other nations around you. Why? Because if you intermarry with them, here's what happened you will begin to worship their gods. But then the Israel disobey God and they live together with the Philistine. But you know what is shocking about this story? What is shocking about this story is the one who wants to marry a Philistine woman is none other than God's chosen judge. So Samson's parents tried to talk him out of it, right? But Samson's not willing to listen. And listen what he said. He said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eye. Now, note the phrase, she's right in my eyes. Have we heard that phrase before? Remember last week's sermon? This is exactly the attitude that Israel is adopting. Israel said, you know, I'm going to do what is right in my eye. It doesn't matter if it's evil in God's eye. And all that matters for Samson is this. He wants her and she's right in his eye. So from the very beginning, we've already given hints that this judge, that Samsung is not going to be the kind of judge that we were hoping for. So let me hit a pause button and let me give you two applications from this text. One personal application and one corporate application. Now, some of you already can guess where I'm going with this because I already said this is for single, okay? Single. First personal application is this. We are not to be in intimate relationship with unbeliever very quiet i realize that but here's the thing though the bible is crystal clear on this it's a matter of black and white not gray but i've met many christian who decided to turn the gray i mean the black and white of the bible into gray have you met them before and they always come to me with reason like this you know right i mean they know they should not date non-believers but what can they do when they're in love So they come to me and say things like, Well, yes, it's not like we're gonna get married, right? We're just going to hold hands and have coffee together for the next two or three years and see where it goes. Well, I know he or she, they're not Christian, but listen, they're a good guy. He's a good guy. And who knows, right? You know how every single week you say that we need to reach white with the gospel? I feel like this is me reaching wide. God is calling me to reach wide. And you know what? Yours, I think this is God's will of my life. And the most important thing is he is hot. And you know my reply? Yeah, so is hell. Okay, of course I didn't say that. Never, right? I'm a pastor. I can't just say that. But I will try to reason why it is not God's will for their life and it won't go well for them. But most of the time it's what happened they ignore my warning. And very soon, they begin to lose desire for God. Now, do you know why? It's actually very, very reasonable. Think about it. When the person you are, not, when the person you are with does not share your faith, there's a great pressure on you to adapt to it by pushing God to the sideline of your life. See, as a Christian, you and I know that God is supposed to be the center, the motivation, the goal, the focus of everything we do. But when you're in intimate relationship with someone who does not share that faith, here's what happens. You try to adapt to it. You try to adapt to that person. Why? Because if you don't adapt, you will continue to headbutt with one another. And the same also applies, listen to me carefully, to people who have different theology. Just because they are in a church... Just because they go to church does not necessarily make them Christian. Because I know there are many people who call themselves Christian, but rather than having God at the center of their life, they have them at the center of their life. All they think about is me, 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 and me. So now if you're thinking about God and God is at the center of everything you do, and the other person thinks about me, I am the most important in my life, and when you try to put this together, it does not work. Someone has to give in, and most likely you are the one who give in. So let me be loud and clear. Reaching white dating does not work. It does not work. Full stop, no coma. Then you ask, them, but but I like this person, yours. I really like him. I really like her. What should I do? Here's what you should do share the gospel with them. Bring them to church. Share the gospel with them. And hopefully, hopefully, they come to know Jesus. And if they come to know Jesus and they have the right faith, don't date them. Give them a year. Test that faith, okay? Whether that faith is genuine or not. And if that faith is genuine, then go ahead. You can hold hand and have coffee for the next two or three years. But the second application that I want to give you is this. We must not adapt, adopt and adapt the value of the world. Now, Michael Wilcock put it nicely. He says this. There's no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. See, in the times of Samson, Israel adopted and adapted the value of the Philistine. That's why they do not resist the Philistine. And this is extremely dangerous because what makes Israel different from other nations is because they are God's people who live by God's standard. But now they have forsaken God and become like other nations around them, they're at the brink of extinction. And let me bring it to us, and the same also applicable to church and Christian. One of the greatest tragedies of the contemporary church is this, that there are many churches today who become like the world in order to attract the world. So it is what we do, right? We look at what works in the world out there, okay? And then we try to copy them and we try to apply it in church and hoping by doing that, we will attract crowds. So here's what we do. So rather than praise and worship, we become like a kawaii version or the cheap version of Coldplay concerts. Rather than sermon, someone who stands here becomes a stand-up comedian or TED Talks. And that's what we do. And it draws crowds. But if we do that, we lose our identity because as a church, as a Christian, we're meant to be different. The way we think is different. The way we love our family is different. The way we use our money is different. Our priorities are different because our lives are not to be like the world but to show the world what God is like and that God is at the heart of everything we do. That is what it means to be Christian. So the question that we need to ask is, what does God do when His people become like the world? First of all, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistine. At that time, the Philistine ruled over Israel. I love this verse because you know why? When His people are comfortable with the world, God does not remain silent. God initiated conflict between his people and the world. And Samson's infatuation with a Philistine woman is part of God's divine plan. Because left to themselves, Israel will disappear from existence. Because like Samson, Israel's eager to marry into Philistine culture. But God has other plans. He's seeking opportunity to strike the Philistines. And God used Samson's sinful desire to bring confrontation between Israelites and the Philistines. See what happened? So God is so unconditionally committed to His people and His promises that He will fulfill them, not only in spite of their sin, but even through their sin. Now, it does not mean, it does not mean that Samson's parents are wrong to object Samson's desire. It does not mean Samson is right in desiring to marry a Philistine woman. It means that nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his purpose, not even Samson's sinful desire. God can and will use the sinfulness of people as camouflage for bringing about his secret will. God is so so sovereign that he can use both good and evil to accomplish his purposes. And they shall over hope to us. Because sometimes what we can see with our eyes is only disappointment. Sometimes what we can see with our eyes is only chaos and evil. What Manoah and his wife can see is their beloved son rebelling against God's will. And I'm sure there's nothing more heartbreaking for Christian parents than to see their children walk in willful disobedience to God. But they have no idea how God is working behind the scene, bringing his good purposes to fruition. Listen, what we don't know may yet prove to be our deepest comfort. Look at what happened next. The weakness of Samson, verse 5 to 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eye. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scrapped it unto his hand and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he has scrapped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So Samson and his parents make their way to Timnah to meet the goal. And when they come to the villages of Timnah, here's what happened. It's interesting. A young lion comes towards Samson, roaring. And I love what happened next. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson and then Samson stirs the lion in pieces with his bare hands. And this is probably the first time in Samson's life that he experienced the Spirit of God working in and through him. And this is the secret to Samson's strength. Samson is not strong because of his long hair. Samson is strong because of the Spirit of God. But the part that catches my attention is not that. The part that catches my attention is that Samson stared the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And I thought, as one tears a young goat? I don't even know how to tear a mouse. What do you mean by one tears a young goat? You know, evidently in those cultures, goat tearing is common. What do you do on the weekend? I tore a few goats, right? But Samson takes it to another level, because why? He tears lion in pieces. Now, I don't know about you, but if a lion attack me, and I tore the lion in pieces, it is definitely, definitely going to make it to my Instagram reels. I'm going to use this for my sermon illustration again and again. i right? would be like, have I told you about the time that I tore lion to pieces? I have. It's okay. You can hear it for the hundredth time. And I'm going to change my name in Instagram. I'm going to call myself the lion slayer. I'll brag about it. I'll make sure everybody knows about it, but not Samson. Isn't that interesting? Samson kept this to himself. He doesn't want to tell anyone, not even his parents. Why? Remember the Nazarite vow? There are three things that he vowed. Samson must not cut his hair. He must not drink any produce from the vine. And he must not have any contact with any dead body. Samson cannot touch a dead animal. But in killing the lion with his hand, he touched a dead animal. He breaks the Nazareth vow. That's why he doesn't tell anyone about it. But that's not the end. So then he continues his journey and meet the girl and the family. And after some days, he returned to take her. And then he sees the lion dead body... And there's a swarm of bee and honey in the body. And you know what he does? He should have known better. He should not touch that dead lion, right? He's a Nazarite. But instead, he touched the dead lion's body and scraped the honey to his hand and eat it. Which means he breaks the Nazareth vow again. Now, can you see what happened? Samson seems to care very little about the Nazareth vow. Because the only thing that mattered to Samson is this: my appetite, my desire, my craving. Let's continue. First ten. So his father went down to the woman. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for the for this young man used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, "Let me now put a riddle to you." If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. This is Samson's box party, okay? He doesn't do karaoke, but he holds a feast. And in the original language, the word feast is actually, listen, a drinking feast. Hold on a second. I thought a Nazarite cannot drink any produce from the vine. Exactly. And to make his bachelor party more fun, Samson turned up the hit. So he turns the lion and the bee incident into a party game. He says, you know what? I, let me give you a riddle and let's make a bet. If you can solve my riddle, I'm going to give each one of you a pair of suit and a set of underwear. But if you can not solve my riddle, then you owe me 30 pairs of suit and 30 sets of underwear. Deal? Deal. Bring it on. So then Samson sells them the riddle. And when you and I read this, we smile, right? Because we know what happened with the lion, the bee, and the honey. But the Philistine men, they're clueless. They have no idea what's happening, and they can't solve the riddle. They spend three days thinking about it. This is too hard, and they finally they care about losing the bet, and they do what they must do. They go to Samson's Amnin woman. Here's what happened, verse 15 to 18. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people, And the man of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you will not have found out my riddle. Husband, there are two important lessons in this passage for you. First, do not let anyone plough with your wife. Second, do not call your wife a heifer. What is a heifer? It's a cow. Okay, so first 18, I think she'll come with a warning. Husband, do not try this at home. Try at your own risk. So the Philistine woman then comes to Samson's wife to get the answer to the Riddle and threaten her. And because of that, now she pressures Samson and she's very cunning. She plays the, I'm pretty sure for some of you are familiar with this, the you don't love me card. If you've been in a relationship for a while, I am sure, I am sure you know this card very well. If you're familiar with it, say amen. Some of you are afraid. That's okay. I know, but this is what people ask, right? And so she kept crying, like, you don't love me. If you love me, why are there secret between us? If you love me, you will tell me everything. To the point that Samson can't take her anymore, and finally he tells her the answer. And then she tells the answer to her people, and voila. Samson lost the bet. And then he says, If you have not messed with my wife, you will not have found out the answer to my riddle. And do you know what Samson does? He blamed them and his wife for losing the bet. But do you know whose fault it is that Samson lost the bet? Himself. Because if he keep his mouth shut, he will have won the bet. And if you know Samson's story, you can't help but notice that this is a foreshadowing of a far bigger mistake that Samson will do in the future. And verse 19 to 20. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garment to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So every time Samson displays supernatural strength, he says this, it's because the spirit of God rushes upon him. So now Samson in his anger attacked another Philistine town, killed 30 men, take their garment, give them to the 30 men in Timnah, and then he goes back to his father's house. And now his father-in-law like, what should we do with our daughter? oh, Let's just give her to Samson's best man. Now, can you see what happened so far? Samson is not thinking about Israel at all. He's not thinking about what he should do to save Israel from the hand of the Philistine. Samson is simply following his own desire and responding to the situation as he pleases. See, this is a man who's out of control. He cannot control his temper. He cannot control his desire. He acts out of impulses, and he does not care about God's given role. Samson is acting and behaving like someone who does not know God. And yet, this is exactly the occasion that God is seeking. Remember? God is seeking opportunity to strike against the Philistine. And God is using Samson's selfish, sinful, narcissistic act to bring about his will. And God is starting to save his people by causing division between Samson and the Philistines. What a gracious sovereign God. So what can we learn from the story so far? I think there are two major weaknesses in Samson's life that we must avoid. Number one, Compromise. Samson broke the Nazareth vow that God has given him again and again. At least up to the point that we read right now, he broke two of them, right? He touched a dead body and he drank wine. And the third will follow later, which leads to his downfall. But here's what Samson might think. Because Samson might think, well, actually there's no harm in me breaking the vow because I did it a couple of times and I'm still okay. Surely it's okay for me to compromise here and there. Nothing bad will happen to me. Little did he know that the thing that he does set him up to fail in the future. See, the same is true for us because a lot of times you and I might think, well, you know, Yos, there's no harm really to compromise here and there, right? I mean, I got away with it again and again. Surely God does not mind. Surely God doesn't mind a little porn. Surely a little thing is not a big deal. Surely a little lie on income tax is okay. Everyone else does it. We get away with it. But friends, do not play around with sin. Because a little compromise has the potential to destroy our life. That's the first one. But the second one is even harder. His second mistake is this, to follow his heart. And the second mistake we must avoid is to follow our hearts. Now, I know if you're into Disney, you hate me already. Because one of the greatest lies of our culture is that we must follow our heart, right? We must be through ourselves. I mean, if you watch Disney movie, Pixar, whatever it is, and even if you listen to graduation speech... You hear something along this line. My friends, follow your hearts. Be true to yourself. March to the beat of your own drummer. You can set the future for yourself. But let me suggest to you otherwise. The Bible seems to tell us do not follow your hearts. Do not march to your own drummer. And whatever you do, Do not be true to yourself. Let me tell you why. Because being true to yourself and following your heart is the recipe for disaster. How do I know? That's the life of Samson. Samson is a man who is controlled by his passion and desire. He does whatever he wants that pleases him. If he wants a woman, he gets her. Doesn't matter who she is. If he wants honey, he eats it. Doesn't matter who is from. If he's angry, he kills people. Doesn't matter what the consequences is. Samson's primary desire, driver in life, is what pleases him. He's the very definition of a man who follows his own, his heart. And it will destroy his life. Let me give you another example that is more personal to us, okay? Texting and driving. I mean, we know, right? We should not text and drive. We know. But me, last year, I got fined twice for texting and driving. I contributed a lot of money to the welfare of our city last year. So we know, instinctively, we know, like, all right, I know that texting and driving is bad. In fact, research tell us that texting while driving makes us 23 times more likely to have accident. But people do that anyway. Why? Because we feel like placing ourselves by knowing what other people send us or what they posted, is more important than our safety and safety of people around us. The point is not, don't text and drive. That's not the point. Yes, it is, but that's only a minor point. The point is this, following our heart is very dangerous. Do you know how many marriages and families have been destroyed because people decide to follow their heart? So let me be crystal clear. Christians are not those who follow their hearts and are true to themselves. Christians are those who follow God's will and deny themselves. See, if we don't learn to deny ourselves and submit to God's will, eventually we are going to destroy our life. So we must decide will we be true to ourselves and follow our hearts? Or will we follow God's will? What drives our decision? Is it what pleases us or what pleases God? And look at my last point, the paradox. First one tweet. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. That means to have sex. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistine when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistine and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchard. Then the Philistine said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son in law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came out and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and tie with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etta. So after some days, Samson come back to his wife, Visited his wife, bringing a young goat as a gift. Now I guess... Young goat is a romantic gift in those days, right? Hey, babe, look at what I got for you for Valentine. A Young goat. Oh, babe, you're so sweet. Guys, try at your own risk. Let me know if it still works today, okay? But what we know here, Samson is in the mood for love. He wants to sleep with his wife. But he does not know that his wife is now married to his best man. So when he comes to his wife, his father is like, no, 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 you can't sleep with her. Because she's married to another man. Why don't you take her younger sister? I mean, she's prettier than her. And at this time, Samson is mad. So he catches 300 foxes, turns them tail to tail, put torches in their tail, and then he set the torches on fire and let the foxes run wild and burn the surrounding area. Now, some of you, modern people, might think, this is animal cruelty. We must sue Samson. yeah. For me, it's funny. Poor foxes, but humorous nevertheless. And when the Philistines hear that, that Samson is responsible for burning the grain, here's what happened. They retaliate by burning his wife and the family, right? And when Samson hear about that, Samson returned fire by striking the Philistine. Now, can you see what happened? God has set the ball rolling. The game of retaliation between Samson and the Philistine. Has begun. Verse nine. Then the Philistine came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, "Why have you come up against us?" They said, "We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us." Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, "Do you not know that the Philistines are ruler over us?" What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistine. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourself. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hand. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So at this time, the Philistines understand that Samson is no ordinary person. So they gather an army to fight Samson and raid the city of Judah. And what's interesting is the men of Judah then begin to negotiate with the Philistines. And they say like, you know what, why don't we just surrender Samson to you? So then 3,000 men of Judah come to Samson and notice what they say. They say this, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? What a sad, sad words. Because can you see what is happening in this text? The people of Judah have accepted the Philistine, their enemy, as their rulers. So rather than fight for what God has given them, they choose to live in peace under their enemy. And what's even more striking, if you remember our first sermon in the book of Judges, I don't expect any of you to remember, but if you remember, remember which, which tribe actually go into the war first? Which tribe? Judah. Judah is the first tribe that began the war with the people of the Canaanites. And now, this same Judah in chapter 15 have become a spineless wimp. They are so keen to remain at peace with their enemy to the point that they have no idea that God has raised up a judge to save Israel. They see the Philistines as their rulers, as Samson as their enemy. How the mighty have fallen. But Samson will not fight his own people, so he make them swear, "You will not attack me. Just bring them to me, bring him, bring me to them, and I will do the rest." So they swear, and they tie up Samson and take him to the Philistine. And let's finish the text, verse 14 to 20. When he came to Lehi, the Philistine came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flux that has caught fire and his bones melted off his hand. And he found a fresh jawbone of donkey and he put out his hand and took it and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, hips upon hips, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, He threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramat-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised?" And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistine 20 years. Once again, the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson and he becomes a super saiyan, right? Boom! And then he finds a fresh jawbone of donkey and uses it as a weapon to kill 1,000 men. And by the way, by doing that, you know what he did? He breaks the vow again. In using that bone, uh, donkey jaw bone a weapon, he breaks the Nazareth vow. And after the fight, Samson is very weakened and thirsty. And for the first time in the story, Samson asks God for help. God, help me. Otherwise, I'll die. And God answers Samson's prayer and gives him water to drink. And pay attention to the last verse. Very interesting. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistine 20 years. Which means Samson has not saved Israel from the hand of the Philistine. Samson judged Israel for 20 years while Israel is under the slavery of the Philistine. And that has not happened before. Usually a judge will save Israel from their enemies and then judge over them. But not this time Not Samson's. But Samson's story is not done. We'll continue next time. But here's a question that I want us to wrestle with, and I'm done. Here's the question. What are we to make of Samson? Because the life of Samson is a paradox, isn't it? Because on one hand, we see the Spirit of God at work in his life and enable him to kill lions and kill many people. On the other hand, we see how sinful and messed up Samson is. So in the same person, we see the power of God at work for salvation, but we also see the sin of Israel at work for destruction. More than any other judge, Samson is probably the closest judge to a Christ figure, but he's also a walking disaster. And the question that we need to ask is, how can God use people like Samson to do God's work? I mean, shouldn't God choose a better, more godly person than Samson? But if we think that, here's what we do. We put God in the box. Because the problem with that mindset is that God is limited by human, and God can only work when people are being good and make godly decisions. It means that God is not a God of grace, but rather a God who responds to good works. And that is not the God of the Bible. This is the way Timothy Keller put it. The amazing truth is that God works through sinners and through sinful situations. He kept His promises to bless His people in the dark and disastrous period of our life, as well as through the times when things are going right. Not even our own sin will stop Him saving us, or using us. My friend, that is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not limited by sinners nor sins. He can use sinful people and sinful action to bring about salvation. And let me close with this. Isn't that the story of the gospel? Because the gospel tells us that sinful people nail Jesus to the cross and kill Him. And yet, God used the greatest sin in history to accomplish the greatest work of salvation in history. The Jews and Romans killed Jesus, but Jesus was delivered according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Though the people put Jesus to death were doing so wickedly, God worked in such a way that their wickedness only bring about God's redemptive purpose. Because Samson's story, my friend, his narcissism actually points us to the very one who will be better than Samson in every way, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, like Samson, Jesus did the work of God's salvation by the power of the Spirit of God. But if Samson is the narcissistic judge, Jesus is the selfless Savior. Because unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised. Jesus every commandment, obeyed every commandment of God and fulfilled the law to the very iota. Unlike Samson, Jesus did not choose to follow his heart. Jesus chose to follow God's heart. See, in the night before crucifixion, you notice know Jesus prayed to God, Father, if you are willing, you can take this cup away from me. Jesus wanted to escape the cross. That is His desire. But then He continued, not my will, but your will be done. He surrendered His will to the Father and He died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. Hence, the good news. Through the greatest sin in the universe, through the hands of sinners who put Jesus on the cross, through the death of the Holy Son of God, God accomplished his greatest work of salvation. So that today when we believe in Jesus, this is what happened. It enabled us to live the way that Samson could not. How? Because of the gospel. Instead of saying, how much can I get away before I get into trouble? We say, what can I do to bring the most glory to God? Instead of saying, I follow my heart and do it my way. We say, I follow God's heart and do God's way. Why? Because now we no longer need to compromise because we know God's way is the best way. We no longer need to follow our heart because we know that God always has our best interests at His heart. How? Because the cross of Jesus Christ proved once and for all that God loves us and He is for us. Us. So when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, we can do what Samson could not do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful because live to, live to ourselves, Lord. We will be like Samson. All of us are narcissistic people who think about what we want, what we desire, our appetite above all. We are selfish, sinful people. But because of your son, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled what we cannot, you obey Jesus, you obey the commandment of God to the very iota. You fulfill the law on our behalf. So today when we put our faith in you, our sin is, it's paid once and for all. And your perfect righteousness is credited to us. And because of this, because we see how much you've done for us, that's what enables us to trust you. That's why we don't have to have it our way. That's why we don't have to compromise, because we understand the cross tells us that you are for us, that you love us above all. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in this person. I don't know what kind of struggle, what kind of compromise we're in right now, but I pray as we continue to behold the beauty of the gospel, may you enable us to live in a way that Samson could not. May you enable us to live for your glory and not our glory. And may we say with our life, may your will be done, not my will, but your will be done in our life. Help us, Lord, in our witnesses, And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.